Marcus's dumb foreign policy ideas corner. We should have like a segment. What's your What's your foreign policy idea today? And you'd be like, you know, today we should happens- bring all our troops into this country. <laughs> But I'm sure this happens to you sometimes where, like, you think you have, a, like, a point to make. You start, you start going down that. You just start, start going digging. That, you start going down that road and realize, like, actually what I'm saying is there's no point there. Like, I just – there's nothing – there's no there there. I thought there was a there there when I started talking. No, I tried to, I like, like, gently – I know you tried to. I tried to gently I, stop you from what you were doing. Yeah, and then you're like, yeah, no, yeah, I'm yeah. doubling down. We're going, we're going all in. <laughs> oh, well. Oh. Yeah, I'm not sure what that was all about. Yeah. Well, feel free to edit that part. Uh, yeah, I think I'm uh, going to leave. Gra- I think I'm going to leave that graciously, if you would like. You know, make it sound <laughs> um, somewhat coherent. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Capello. I'm an assistant professor of government here at William and Mary. And joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hello, Marcus. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing today? Doing pretty well. Uh, we have. Uh, what are we going to talk about today? With a lot of things going on in the world. Some of which we may have some value add, some of which we may not. Um, I got on my list here protests in Iran. I got on my list here um, the increased risk of nuclear use between Russia and Ukraine. We've already beaten the nuclear thing to death. I got on my list here issues of strategic ambiguity popping up in international affairs in Taiwan and in the U.S. response to Russia right now. We have some escalation management issues, always a hot topic, um, with the apparent sabotage of the Nord Stream gas pipeline um, happening in the last couple of days and, um, you know, potential Russian actions with this annexation of uh, or these referendum, fake referendum that are occurring um, in occupied territories of Ukraine. Um, so lots to talk about. Where do, where do you want to start? I mean, actually, uh, I'm curious to get your take on the last topic. So the, the sort of things that we've seen in the news recently with Russia um, taking what appear to be more and more sort of like desperate types of actions, right? So the, the sort of calling up of civilians and this sort of draft, which caused all kinds of chaos at airports as people were trying to leave and get out of the country for, for good reason. Um, and then most recently, right, this, this gas pipeline, uh, we're, st- we're still not sure exactly what happened. It looks like to a lot of experts that this was a, a deliberate uh, sabotage type of, type of operation. And I guess if we go with that premise, that that is actually what happened, that, that Russia decided to, you know, sabotage the pipeline. What what do you make of that? I mean, is there anything that we can infer from that from that action other than the sort of obvious, like, well, they're trying to punish the West. They want to make it this winter particularly difficult. It's going to be very expensive if you live in parts of Eastern and Western Europe to heat your homes when the, when the weather gets cold, all that kind of stuff. Is there, any, is there anything else, though, that we can sort of glean other than this is just sort of a desperate attempt to uh, weaken the position of of Western countries, particularly NATO countries? Well, I mean, I think I think there's a couple things going on there. So one is, um, you know, you're right. There's kind of this this first level of analysis where uh, Russia makes it more expensive and harder for Europe to heat itself this winter. And the kind of one remaining pipeline is going through Ukraine. Right. Um, So there's uh, Russia has even more control there. I think the broader kind of signaling story here is about Russia escalating to make Western European countries the target of their efforts in a way that we haven't seen so far in this conflict. And, you know, I've seen some analysts talking about this and saying, well, Russia has shown some restraint here or or at least has been deterred from doing this um, over the course of the war so far that we might have expected if we were looking at this before the war began, that Russia would have been lashing out at Western European countries 
earlier, maybe with cyber attacks, maybe with other kinds of um, escalation. But this is maybe the first thing that they've actually done that seems to be kind of reaching out and touching Western Europe in a way that brings them into the kind of sphere of the conflict a little more. I mean, we, we're proceeding here under the assumption that this is Russia. There, there are other theories out there. I, I think this is like by far the most likely uh, story. But, you know, it's worth saying that you know, there's at least some other candidates for potentially um, uh, perpetrating this kind of thing. But I, I think uh, it makes sense that it that it was Russia. But one thing to think about here is what is going to be the European response to this escalation? And does this have the risk of backfiring on Russia if this was a deliberate Russian attempt to sabotage and send the signal that Western Europe is now is a, is a valid target for Russian action? Because, you know, one thing that Ukraine certainly is worried about is what is the will in Western Europe to continue its support to Ukraine through a long, cold winter Right. When we might not see any progress in the conflict. So there's kind of this idea that the kind of lines of control in Ukraine will solidify over the winter. Very hard to advance in the winter. I don't know if that's true, but that's at least what some people are talking about. And so one risk is a lack of progress militarily in the war will lead allies to say, well, you know, we're going to back off of our kind of hard line against Russia that we've held to this time. Uh, so Russia, by taking this action, does it push Western Europe even further into the arms of Ukraine, make them more firmly dedicated to support of that conflict. And so th there's this question of what is the signal here and what is the result of the signal on the part of the Western European countries? Yeah, I mean, if I, I find it hard to believe that the Western European countries are going to uh, find this the thing that really tests their, their resolve, if you know what I mean. Like, I think that part of, of what we've seen so far in this conflict is these you know, NATO countries in Western Europe and the United States coming together, uh, being uniform. And it seems like every couple of months something happens and we say, maybe this is the thing that's going to start to chip away that kind of solidarity. Uh, and, and my sense is that I, I think Western Europe is looking at this and, and saying, we're, we're in this now. Like, we're, we are, we are going to continue to, uh, you know, support Ukraine. We're going to continue to push back against this type of aggression. If anything, I would actually expect the the sabotage, if that's exactly what happened, to have the opposite intended effect of what Putin wants it to have. You know, I think this is going to backfire like many of the other things he's done so far is going to backfire. And I suspect that this is going to be something that they're going to they're going to end up regretting uh, that they did because it does have ramifications for them. Right. This is not exactly like a costless signal, you know, sabotaging the, the pipeline. This is going to be this is going to be difficult for Russia to deal with. And I, I don't think that's going to change the calculus for Western Europe. I think the one thing you said that, that is important, though, to keep in mind, the winter will likely be different in this conflict. And I'm not a military strategy guy, and I don't really you know, follow the, the, the way that this all works. But everything that I've read— I am. Ask me about military strategy. Let's do it. Okay. Well, but everything, everything I've read suggests that what you said is true, which is basically like things, positions will be hardened in the winter. It's going to be much harder to kind of make progress one way or the other. Uh, and as that sort of winter drags on into March, April, maybe even May, you know, then you start, you know, things heat up again and things can change. But like, that is a long time for Western Europe to kind of hold the line and keep that solidarity going. So I do think that that's something to, to keep an eye on. I agree with you. I, I think that the Western European states are resolved. I think the U.S. is continuing to demonstrate how committed it is to the defense of Ukraine in terms of providing material. There was just another announcement today about um, more uh, anti-artillery missile systems being sent to Ukraine. Like, the, you know, the, the money is flowing, the the 
the military equipment is flowing. Um, and I think they are quite resolved. So I, I agree. I think this is not likely to change anything there. I think it might be useful to think about this action in the context of other things that are going on, all of which kind of point in the direction of trying to signal Russian resolve that they are committed or Putin is committed to staying in this conflict in the longer term. And uh, so you can see the mobilization in Russia in those terms where there are probably hundreds of thousands, maybe more Russian men being called to service uh, to bolster Russian military positions in Ukraine. Uh, there are reports of these people being sent with a minimal if or no training to the to right to the to the battlefield. You know, one of the things that analysts have kind of looked at is Putin's reluctance to do this so far in the conflict. And we've kind of seen that as, well, he's stopping short of a full mobilization, right? He's stopping, stopping short of a war. This is a special operation, says Putin. And it's not, a, it's not a war. And once it's a war, that has all these implications for kind of domestic mobilization and has domestic implications for Putin's ability to back out, right? So when it's a special operation... You know, you, you did you did something, you took control of some territory, you can say, OK, mission accomplished. And there's maybe there's certainly a lot of questions about that, but there may be fewer questions than now. Now that the, the population is more mobilized, now that we'll see lots of people die uh, in this conflict uh, who have been mobilized, this kind of commits Putin publicly to a more resolved position to be in this war for the long term in a way that he wasn't before. And you can kind of see the, um, the sabotage of the, the gas pipeline in a similar vein, right? That this is, this is Putin and Russia signaling their commitment, their resolve that they're going to be in this and uh, that some of the barriers that have been making this seem like a more limited engagement, even though it was a substantial war, are falling away. And so this is maybe a broader signal to the international community as well that this is going to be the long term, a long term conflict for Russia. Yeah, unfortunately, I completely agree. I mean, I would like to be able to argue with you on this, but I think that that's exactly what they're doing. They're telling the world we're, we're here for the long term. Uh, it's going to be a long winter. And you're just going to have to get. Get ready for that. That, that this, nothing's going to change here. And, and I think one of the things that this is, you know, sort of highlighting is is also the prospects for some type of end to this war, some type of negotiated settlement. Just you know, it's it's very hard to envision when you see things like this, the sabotage of the of the pipeline. It's hard to think about like what what that might even look like. You know, oftentimes in international politics, you can see sort of like a zone of, of agreement. You can say like, OK, well, here are the things that are, will be reasonable for Ukraine to give up. Here are the things that would be reasonable for Russia to give up uh, and that can, you could get some agreement there. I have trouble seeing any type of zone of possible agreement at the moment. Uh, and it gets worse every single time Russia does something to signal how, how resolved they are. So every time you think maybe Russia's getting you know, fed up with this, enough is enough. Maybe they're just going to cut their losses. Putin kind of doubles down. Whether it's the nuclear threats, whether it's the sabotaging, whether it's the, the essentially the draft calling up civilian forces, and and so every single time that happens and the the signal of resolve increases, it gets harder and harder to see how this ends. And so what I've been pessimistic about, you know, for for a while now, but just recently in particular, just I, I don't I don't envision I can't envision what sort of a, the end to this war looks like. It's it's beginning to look very much like things that we see in you know places like Syria, for example, where a similar type of of um, very different conflict, but a similar type of environment kind of takes over where 
how do you end this? What is, what is the end? What's the what's the end game here? Do you have any any way of thinking about this optimistically? What the end game looks like? No, I don't. I, I mean, I think I think you're right that uh, it is difficult to see what the negotiated settlement looks like here. Part of what makes it difficult is that the military situation is still rapidly moving. We haven't reached the kind of stalemate point that we sometimes talk about in um, the academic IR people sometimes talk about in terms of when uh, negotiation is most likely to happen is when these the parties kind of reach a stalemate and it's very clear that neither party or the other is going to gain much ground. And so that's the point when they say, well, we might as well negotiate. And right now, uh, Ukraine is militarily uh, doing well and changing the the uh, real facts on the ground in terms of who controls what territory. And as long as that's going on, it's very difficult to see, you know, what is what is the negotiation look like? What does the settlement look like? Uh, I think there's some reason to be pessimistic that that continues for very much longer, although, um, you know, it, it's certainly possible. And, and one possible outcome here that's a little bit worrying is uh, Ukraine does really well and is able to expel Russian troops significantly from a lot of this territory. And then the fact that Putin has doubled down with this mobilization, with this additional escalation, with these nuclear threats kind of comes back into mind. And we think, OK, what is he going to do to try to turn this evident loss into a win? Right. How desperate is he going to get to get something out of this? And that's when we start to worry about things like, you know, that could change the game. Things like the use of nuclear weapons um, and, and I think or a wider escalation with NATO. You know, the way things are trending, it's like toward this kind of desperate Putin story that, that makes me worry a lot. I was telling my class the other day um, about the sort of dangers of having leaders in, in positions where they feel cornered. And there's this, you know, I know you're, you're a rationalist, but there's a psychological set of theories and prospect theory that talks about how when, when individuals are facing all these losses, you know, they, they, they double down, they take more risks, they try to alleviate those losses by winning something. Yeah, like me when, I'm, me when I'm playing blackjack, you know? So for Putin, I, my, my sense is that he, he is cornered. The, the, the actions are, are seeming, you know, more and more desperate. And that becomes a very dangerous situation because then it's it's like he's not he's not risk averse at all. He's very risk accepting, um, and that's that makes the prospect of of a deal even more unlikely. Because if you're in a risk accepting state of mind, why would you accept a deal? A deal for him might be viewed as a loss, right? If he can continue to to you know make gains by taking on higher levels of risk, that might be a preferable strategy for him. So I think I think ultimately you're right. I mean, this is starting to look like a cornered leader who has nuclear weapons. And that's scary. Yeah. And I mean, I don't want to get to um, make too strong a prediction about what's going to happen next militarily. I mean, I've been repeatedly surprised throughout this conflict about how the kind of facts on the ground have gone in terms of military performance of both sides. So we may find, you know, in a couple months that, well, these were the lines and that Ukraine's advance had been halted, or maybe Russia was able to retake some territory with this additional influx of manpower. So it's, it's not clear that it necessarily will continue going in this situation, but or in this in this direction, the direction it has been going. Um, but there are certainly, you know, Ukraine's latest offensive has been uh, very strong in terms of gaining back territory and and kind of sending Russian forces uh, fleeing. You know, you you mentioned at the outset of, of today's podcast, the strategic ambiguity. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it's it's interesting to me because I've been thinking about this. We normally talk about it with respect to Taiwan, uh, which we could talk about. But 
it's it also seems to be the case that there's a lot of strategic ambiguity going on on the American side with respect to Russia. So like the 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 Biden uh, speech and and sort of like response to that Putin speech that that he gave. To me, I read that it was it was just all this strategic ambiguity stuff. It was sort of like, you know, Putin knows damn well what we're going to do if they use nuclear weapons. He didn't say what those things would be. He's sort of leaving it open to interpretation. But the idea is like, you know, wink, wink, you know, we, we all know what's going to happen if, if Putin was so crazy as to use a tactical nuclear weapon in, you know, the UK or France or something like that. Uh, but it, it is interesting how the, the language is is very ambiguous, you know? I mean, ambiguity is also like kind of in the eye of the holder. Some people might look at that speech and say that wasn't ambiguous at all. I know exactly what, what Biden's saying. Uh, he's making direct threats. It's obvious to everybody. I didn't read it that way. I, I read it as, you know, he, the U.S. is in a, in a tricky position because they don't want to, you know, sort of go on the record explaining exactly how they would respond if there were to be some type of tactical nuclear weapon used by Russia. On the other hand, they also want to signal quite strongly uh, there will be devastating consequences if you were to, to do that. This idea that you could escalate to de-escalate we have to show in our in our language anyway it's complete nonsense and we're not going to stand for that so he's you know biden's in a tricky spot you know you have to be clear enough that the message gets across uh but also ambiguous enough that you're not kind of giving away the store and, and sort of explaining everybody exactly point by point what you're going to do should a tactical nuclear weapon go off yeah no it's a really fascinating and terrifying example of of strategic ambiguity at work and there were some stories over the weekend um i think Jake Sullivan was was making the rounds. The, the national security advisor um, was was making the rounds on on TV and was saying that the, that the U.S. has been in touch with through through back channels, through other mechanisms, has been in touch with Russia and has delivered the unequivocal message that they should not use nuclear weapons. Right. And and, uh, you know, it's not they will be face face dramatic consequence. I forget the phrase. Right. But but it's it's something that is both very clear and also extremely ambiguous. What does that mean? Does that mean right. the U.S. is going to nuke them back? Does that mean the U.S. is going to, you know, invade Ukraine on the side of the Ukrainians? What, what does it mean? We don't know. And uh, you can't blame Biden for not saying so, right? It's, it's not the kind of thing that you would want to telegraph in advance, but you still have to find a way to make that threat credible. Um, now, Secret threats are kind of by definition not credible. So I, I the whole the whole like let's communicate through back channels thing is a little bit uh, a little bit odd to me. I like it better when Biden makes a speech about it or when uh, Jake Sullivan talks about it on TV because at least then there's like we're committing publicly to this to this course of action, um, whatever that course of action may be. Um, but we see this in, in a lot of different areas and, and throughout the war the 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 sanctions that kind of came before Russians. Russia's invasion that were designed to discourage Russia from invading. There was a lot of talk. Well, we will level substantial sanctions on you. We will we will um, take serious action. You will face tremendous consequences if you do this. And there was no specificity. We didn't say, okay, well, this company will be sanctioned. This this entity will be sanctioned. And there's kind of an obvious reason for that. Like we 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 don't want Russia to be able to avoid those sanctions in it by knowing about them in advance. But at the same time, the, the ambiguity around it makes it a little bit, a little bit sketchy, hard to pin down. Right. And um, this is a, a kind of interesting thread through the conflict that uh, is something we often talk about in terms of alliances and the test, the, the textbook case for this is, is Taiwan, which the U S wants to support 
but has historically stopped short of saying if China in, invades, if China attacks, we will have your back militarily. We've stopped short of saying that for a couple of reasons. One, don't want to antagonize China unnecessarily. But maybe more importantly, we don't want to encourage Taiwan to do anything rash, to pick a fight with China, knowing that the U.S. has its back. And so we've kind of tried to toe this line in between. We call it strategic ambiguity, where we say, well, you know, we, are, we support Taiwan, right? But we don't, we don't say exactly what that means um, and President Biden has dispensed with this strategic <laughs> ambiguity. And it's interesting because he said multiple times now, lots of times, we will defend Taiwan if China, if China invades in no uncertain terms. And each time the White House kind of tries to pull that back a little later, leaving a little bit of more ambiguity. Well, maybe maybe Biden's view isn't like fully vetted. Maybe he doesn't really that's just an off the cuff Biden. And if if this actually happened, once the bureaucrats got in the room, they could talk him out of it or something. But um, it seems pretty clear what President Biden thinks we should be doing in the case of a Chinese attack on Taiwan. Can I just ask you what you think explains this recent because I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I, I look out uh, at, at what Biden is doing. And on the one hand, with Russia, there's this strategic ambiguity. And then with Taiwan, he's, he's basically saying like, no, 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 no. I don't want to, I, let's not be ambiguous at all. It's almost like he's trying to like offset or balance the two, you know, sort of like make up the equilibrium, like it's restored or whatever. I, I don't, I don't know what explains this recent sort of flurry of statements. Um, now it could be like, obviously like some intelligence information is, that we don't have access to is, is the reason for this. There was the Pelosi visit, you know, that was, was uh, kicked off lots of different, you know, um, conversation and then military exercises and things like that. But it just seems a little bit strange on the timing that this is all happening um, at the moment. I mean, maybe, maybe what's going on is he's trying to send a signal to, to China. Don't don't think that our attention is elsewhere with with Russia and Ukraine. Um, we stand by Taiwan and we always have and we always will. But it, it seems like an interesting moment to be clarifying the strategic position on Taiwan while increasing the ambiguity with with Russia. Do you have a sense of what, what what's going on here? Why this is happening? I mean, I my guess since these these statements about Taiwan have been have been occurring before this this current conflict uh, with with Russia and Ukraine. So my my sense is just this is actually Biden's belief mm-hmm. that he just really, you know, he, every time every once in a while you ask uh, President Biden a question, he tells you the answer. And in this case, like he really thinks like if, if China attacks, we will defend Taiwan. And so that's how he's going to going to answer it. And maybe in the in the Russia case, Biden doesn't know what the U.S. is going to do. It, it, it's too context dependent. What if, if, if Russia drops yeah. a tactical nuke on on this place or that place, the U.S. is going to have a different response depending on what happens. Right. Maybe it's. If it's uh, in the middle of nowhere and it's like a test detonation, maybe that gets a different response than if it's people are killed or it's military, militarily significant. And so I don't think Biden, off the top of his head, knows the answer to the question, what would we do if Russia used a tactical nuke in Ukraine? But I think he does know the answer to what we would do if China attacked Taiwan. And the answer is we defend Taiwan. And so people ask him any answers. Um, and I, well, there's I, still there's still contextual things there too, though. I mean, it, it, partly it would depend on what China was doing in Taiwan. I would think, right? I mean, there's different versions of the way this goes down, but yeah, maybe. You know. But the, the the universe of limited attacks on Taiwan is is much more narrow than in the case of. I think there's a lot more room for that context in the Russia Ukraine context. You know, you could imagine like, well, what does it mean if 
what, what would we do if China blockaded Taiwan, right? Mm, so this right. is like an intermediate exactly. step, right? That's what I was thinking, not a full-on invasion. But, right. I, but, but I, think, I think he's talking about if there's a military attempt to take over the take island, over. Then, yeah. then this is, this is what we do. And, uh, you know, you got to respect some, some straight talk every once in a while, even if it annoys the, the foreign policy uh, experts in the, in the administration. I think there's a sense. So there, there's another take on this, which is that China needs some clearer signaling here. This has gotten to be a dangerous enough situation with regard to the China-Taiwan relationship that it would actually be helpful for the United States to stake a position that is more clear and less ambiguous and let China factor in the likelihood of U.S. involvement before it decides to do something stupid. Um, so there, there's that. There's that out there too. You know, the 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 temperature on that relationship has been going up and up and up. Right, the risk of right. conflict has been going up and up and up. And we've had some some real experts who I respect warning about like imminent Chinese action against mm-hmm. Taiwan, mostly before the current Russia Ukraine thing. Uh, and and maybe that the administration decided. It's time to make be a little more clear about we, what we might do. That we're more worried about the signal we send to China than we are about Taiwan doing something stupid at this point. Right. I mean, I suppose the the whole reason for the strategic ambiguity in the in the first place was that we were we we're trying to avoid <laughs> the conflict and the confrontation. I mean, there is a concern that Biden might be sort of like accelerating yeah. the potential for some. I mean, I, I'm not saying he's like causing war, but. It's it's possible that one way to look at this is that Biden's kind of talking himself into and talking with with the Chinese counterparts. Maybe this is becoming more likely because we're talking about it. We're saying the. I mean, I've always struck in international politics how some of these things are kind of like self fulfilling. You know, you start talking about something in a particular way, all of a sudden it's not it's not so ambiguous anymore. It becomes real. It becomes real in words, and then you're just a couple steps away from that to becoming real in actual action. I mean, we saw this in Russia too, right? It started with words. You know, Putin was talking about Ukraine and the fascists and this and that. And then from there, it was, you know, okay, now we're going to start putting some troops near the border. And from there, you know, so it's these things have a way of kind of getting out of control a little bit. Um, The situations are different. But I think that one concern would be Biden, by being so forthcoming about how he feels in this particular instance, uh, makes the chances of confrontation more likely. I mean, the way you interpret it is is actually makes it less likely because we're sending a signal to, to China. But I could also see the opposite case where actually this is just making confrontation and conflict a little bit more generally more likely. But how does how does signaling this make conflict more likely? Lay, lay that out for me. Well, I think part of the issue is that by having strategic ambiguity, we kind of keep the status quo. Right. We kind of say we don't we're not going to say exactly what would happen. China doesn't know. There's uncertainty. And because of that uncertainty, they're they're sitting there thinking. Well, we don't we don't know what's going to happen, so therefore we don't want to take action. But if Biden is coming out and laying out the cards and saying we are going to going to get involved in, and defend Taiwan, maybe that's what China actually wants. Maybe they want to have a conflict with the United States over Taiwan. It's not it's not inconceivable to me that that's actually something that they would not enjoy, but it'd be part of their you know political calculus and a, a, a foe to fight while they're worried about Russia and Ukraine is actually not that terrible of an outcome, right? So like. The United States is, is torn over here in Europe. They're dealing with this in, in Ukraine. And now they're saying, like, we're going to fight over Taiwan. Well, let's see if they're going to fight. Let's call their bluff. And then if the United States backs down, it doesn't actually defend Taiwan, despite the fact that they said publicly that they would, then I think China has the clear kind of upper hand in the situation. So I could see China looking at this and saying, you know, it's not, this is actually not so bad for us. They're going out and saying, they're drawing a line. You know, when Obama did the red line in Syria, like, you come out and make these public statements. They're out there on the record now. 
And so the United States will be in a position where they're going to have to call call the bluff if they if they're if they're forced to. Yeah, I, I have a hard time seeing the scenario where China is not sure whether it wants to in, engage in a military operation against Taiwan, and then it gets information that suggests the U.S. is more likely to come to Taiwan's aid, and it says, "Oh, okay, now I'm likely to do it." I mean, I feel like if anything, the U.S. Reduction of ambiguity. The U.S. being more clear about its intent is likely to help deter China rather than encourage China to get into that conflict. But I will say the whole concept of strategic ambiguity is something that when I talk about it in class, students are like rolling their eyes at me. Right? That this this whole thing sounds a little bit ridiculous when you're not uh, <laughs> when you talk about it. Right? The like like oh, it's better not to be clear about what we want. That seems to fly in the face of. Uh, a more, I don't know, straightforward concept of deterrence. You say, I tell my kids, you do that, you're going to bed early, right? And being very clear about it. You don't say to your kid, like, you do that, I may offer you a, I may give you a punishment, or I may not. Which of those is more of a stronger stance, right? If I lay out in advance what I'm likely to do, then that's more traditional deterrence. And so I think it's, it's hard to wrap your head around how that strategic ambiguity story really, uh, really plays out. Well, and, and also, I mean, if if the argument that you were making before is, is right, that like actually the, the China-U.S. relationship has kind of been deteriorating over time, um, and particularly over Taiwan, things have gotten more heated, maybe that's an in indication that the strategic ambiguity idea is actually not working. So, so part of the calculus for Biden might be, well, we've done this strategic ambiguity thing for a while, seemed to work in the past. Things are not going so well right now. I'm getting a little nervous when Pelosi goes over there and we have these, you know, military exercises, et cetera. So maybe we're going to change the calculus. I think that, that you know, part of Biden's thinking might be – Biden might not be thinking about why he's, he's saying these things. But it also could be that he's recognizing that strategic ambiguity has kind of outlived its usefulness. And maybe what they do need is, is a more kind of strong signal of, of support, uh, Taiwan that is. So that would be, you know, consistent with your story. But I also I just have this I, I don't know what it is, but it, my I have a, a view of this that that suggests that U.S. threatening China uh, over Taiwan, I just am not sure that that actually is all that beneficial to to the United States with respect to the the, the idea of having a potential conflict. If anything, I think it's sort of neutral. I don't think it changes like you know at best it doesn't change the likelihood of conflict. And I could also see China kind of being motivated by this and saying, well, now we now we have a statement that says we're going to do this we got to go we're going to test it you know we're going to see where the united states is so i'm not saying it makes more more likely necessarily but i i i'm one of the democrats who looks at this and is not all that happy when biden talks about taiwan this way i like strategic ambiguity i say keep it what else we got on the agenda i have no segue for this but um let's talk about iran protests okay um so we have a popular uprising in Iran, kind of sparked by a horrible incident in which a woman was killed or, or died in um, police custody after she was arrested for not wearing a hijab. And this has sparked protests in major Iranian cities. Uh, we, you know, I'm sure everyone's seeing video of this on Twitter and elsewhere. Really brave, courageous people. I like just watching people uh, kind of go into these protests knowing they're likely to be beaten, arrested, maybe killed, um, but doing it anyway. That is... Uh, profiles in, in bravery right there. And it's really impressive to see. And, um, you know, you really feel for, for these people who are putting themselves out there and, and doing this. What do, what do you make of this, Marcus? What is the uh, IR 
theory connection to this to this story? I think one piece that's that's sort of from an IR theory perspective that I think is might be relevant is that some of the literature, uh, which is which might not be directly related, but I think is there's parallels that talk about norms and how norms you know emerge and how they get internalized by states, really emphasize both the sort of domestic grassroots social movements. So so what's going on right now in Iran? Courageous, you know, uh, young women going out and, and doing this. This is incredibly important, obviously, because it raises attention to the issue. But one of the crucial things is also often support from the outside. And that can take two forms. So one form would be sort of NGOs and groups that are going to advocate on, be, on behalf of people in Iran who are trying to organize and trying to, to grow power. And it's, it's difficult because Iran is cracking down. They're curbing Internet access and stuff like that. But also state-led uh, pressure. So oftentimes in these uh, uh, situations where you're trying to change like a social practice, you're trying to change a norm, a lot of the successful efforts come from outside states putting pressure uh, on the state in question. And so whether that's maybe the United States trying to do something, it's a little tricky in the United States now because they're also trying to, to negotiate this new nuclear deal. But Western Europe, I mean, maybe it's it's a coalition of states that try to, to take what's going on inside Iran at the grassroots level and put pressure from the outside and say, you need to take this seriously. One of the things I've noted in, in looking at this and reading about uh, these protests is that they've been basically happening since 1997. So basically since the revolution occurred, there were these, you know, uh, uh, groups of people who were like, this is this is like something that we cannot stand for. We're not going to accept it. And so there have been these protests over time. But every single time, it seems like the regime is able to kind of clamp down and, and, and push it out. So I wonder if, you know, in the age of the Internet, where we have a little bit more sort of visibility to what's going on, maybe this is the time where we're going to see outside actors outside of Iran, NGOs and states put a little bit of pressure on Iran to, to change uh, some of their practice. I'm not particularly optimistic that that's going to happen, but I think that this is a big enough event at the moment that it, it could happen. Yeah, I think the internet story is kind of an interesting piece of this, that you know, one of the first things that um, Iran did when these protests started was uh, try to cut off the internet, and that's been kind of continuing. There have been uh, periods of time where the internet has been unavailable, been more aggressive at blocking access to social media services, and part of that is a attempt to prevent uh, Iranian protesters from mobilizing and communicating. Um, and part of that may be an attempt to prevent the stories of these protesters from getting out um, and kind of galvanizing that outside support that you're talking about, um, particularly among you know, the Iranian diaspora, right, which is an extensive community abroad. So like when we think about the Arab Spring, and one story you can tell about the Arab Spring is that it needed the internet to, to, to get hold and to prompt these uh, these popular uprisings. And one of the lessons that governments learned from these uprisings is that sometimes it's better to shut the internet down and uh, mm -hmm. to prevent this kind of mobilization. On the other hand, there is a big debate about the kind of uses of the internet by governments to control populations and put down uh, protests. So by infiltrating, by using hacking tools to get access to to protesters and activists' uh, information and using that to kind of combat the uh, popular protests. So there's there's this double-edged sword of internet access and access to information that can both spur protests and also can be used to suppress them. I'm also glad that you brought up the Arab Spring because uh, I think one of the sort of popular takes on the Arab Spring was that it was sort of a big failure. You know, like you, you had these uprisings in a bunch of countries and you thought, okay, now democracy is coming to all these countries and everything's going to be better. And I think that was 
the, the sort of expectations might have been a little bit too high for what they were able to, to do. And there were changes. I mean, so there were in some countries anyway, you know, more democracy and things like that. But I've always kind of felt that um, the Arab Spring wasn't over. Like we, we talk about it as if it was like this like thing in time where there's a beginning and an end. I think actually the story of, of you know, what's what's been happening for the last decade and a half is the Internet. You know, the jury's still kind of out on like what the effect of the Internet is on on places that we have large groups of people who are struggling for their rights and struggling for freedom. It's 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 a complicated story. Governments can use it to their advantage, of course. But I think that the the jury's still out on, on the extent to which the internet is going to prove to be, and social media in particular, uh, uh, providing the ability for groups of people that previously did not have rights to gain those rights. Um, and so, from my perspective, the Arab Spring didn't stop. You know, I think what we're seeing now in, in Iran is part of the Arab Spring. If we if we think about the Arab Spring as you know the the sort of mobilization of of people using social media to to you know advocate for, on behalf of themselves and to organize and, and things like that that hasn't ended there's been you know fits and starts in terms of progress uh but sometimes these things take these, these things take time and it might be the case that before we know it you know there are real substantial changes i don't know if that's going to happen in iran i don't i don't think anybody knows but it wouldn't shock me if it did and then we would look back and say well the arab spring started 15 years ago uh, and it was just a process that kind of like globalization just continued without people really even paying attention to it in, all, in a lot of times and then had, you know, really profound effects. And so to me, this is sort of the Arab Spring continuing. Uh, and it'd be very interesting to watch to see how it all all plays out. I think that's a hopeful note on which to end. Uh, let me just remind everyone that we'd love to hear from you. We want to know what you want us to talk about. So go to www.speakpipe.com slash cheap talk to leave a voicemail. We'll play it on the podcast, um, maybe, uh, but you can always email Marcus Holmes and let him know, uh, what you want, <laughs> what you want on the podcast. Or you can email Jeff Kaplow and say, our podcast should be on Spotify. That's right. I got, I got advocate, several of those. <laughs> advocate for your position. Don't give up just because professor Kaplow says, no, don't take that as the, as the final word on the matter. You, you have to, you have to fight. You have to, you have to make your arguments. Thanks for that, Marcus. I wish your inbox uh, a lot of joy over the next. <laughs> right. Well, if all seven hours. of our listeners write in, I will. I will be <laughs> able to handle it. Um, Marcus, thanks so much for joining me today. This has been a pleasure, as always, Professor Kaplow. All right. Take care. See you next time. So, I just want to speak for a moment to your students, uh -oh. many of whom have approached me uh -oh. in various ways to request that this podcast be made available on Spotify. Oh, good. I thought you were going to say something like, you know, they're complaining because they're not they're learning anything or something like that. <laughs> I think that goes without saying. I don't, I don't think they need to express that in words. Right. But the, I just want to take a moment and address the, the issue of Spotify as a podcast delivery platform. Please do, because I get this question. I get this question all the time. And they want to know why they have to go to some dopey jeffcaplow.net or whatever. Why can't they just have it be in Spotify, which is where they get all of their other podcast type content? Okay. So I, I can do, <laughs> I'm just restraining myself to do the short version of this talk instead of the long version of this talk. How, what do the words RSS feed mean to you, Marcus? Um, I know what that is. Okay. So I know what that is. That's right. a way for me to subscribe to this. So lovely podcast. podcasts are a remnant of the old web, the old internet back when. Remember stuff, Gopher? Do you remember Gopher? I remember Gopher. Of course Gopher? I remember Gopher. FTP servers? We're, we're, we're not yeah. going to do the nostalgia podcast. We'll have to save the nostalgia okay. tech podcast. We'll save that we'll for, save for later. That'll but, be a Thanksgiving special. <laughs> that's right. But like podcasts are just 
a website, right? It's just an RSS feed. It's just a place on the internet where your podcast reader goes to download a piece of to an MP3 file, basically. So like podcast, the old web, right? It's free. It's open. Anyone can post a podcast. Anyone can listen to any podcast that's out there that's not restricted in some way. So Spotify, as you know, is not an open platform in the same way. Spotify is um, a streaming music service. And what Spotify wants to do is sign on podcasts to its service to make it a kind of one-stop shop for all of your audio listening needs, right? And anytime you're listening to a podcast on Spotify, Spotify is thrilled because they don't have to pay royalties to the podcast like they do to the actual, you know, the artists whose music they're playing. So when you, anytime you spend on Spotify, that's not listening to music is like a big win for Spotify. So Spotify has an interest in kind of getting all these podcasts on their platform. And part of what they're doing there is they are purchasing podcasts and paying a lot of money to podcast creators. Not us. I will say we have, we have oh. no offers, no outstanding offers from Spotify. You got me excited there for a second. No, I mean, th- that would really convince me to move the podcast to Spotify. Spotify. Spotify wants to make us an offer. Um, we're cheap. We'll do it for 10, 15 bucks, whatever, whatever you're willing to offer. Oh, I see what you did there. Cheap, cheap talk. We're cheap. Nice. Clever. Yeah, no, I was totally, I totally had that in mind when I said that. Um, so Spotify is trying to sign on all these creators, these podcast creators, and they're doing it by offering them money. And part of the deal is you'll make it a Spotify exclusive and it will go behind Spotify's paywall. And so there's a real question. Is it even a podcast? If it's a podcast on Spotify, because it no longer has this kind of open internet feel, it's no longer accessible from anywhere. And I, my strong belief is that if Spotify gets control of enough of the podcast business, it could really kill the podcast industry, which granted, we are not a large portion of the podcast industry. But as an avid podcast listener, this is something that's a big deal, but they're pulling away podcasts, taking them off the open web and putting them behind a paywall for all intents and purposes. So nearly every podcast can be listened to in every podcast player, except the ones that are on Spotify. Our podcast is available on most podcasts, most, most podcast players, because you can put in the URL, the, the, like, um, you know, the, my website basically, and your podcast will download that podcast stream and you can listen to it just as if it's been listed in the, in the just central repository. But Spotify doesn't allow you to do that. They have no interest in opening their app to be used to listen to these things outside of their ecosystem. They want to be able to inject ads into the podcast that they are hosting. And you can't do that if the hot podcast is hosted from jcaplow.net, right? What I would say to the people who want to listen to the podcast on Spotify is you shouldn't listen to any of your podcasts on Spotify. You should get yourself a podcast player. If you have uh, iPhone, I recommend Overcast. There are plenty of other options on Android, um, but get one that you can listen to your the, the free and open internet of podcasts and you're not stuck behind this uh, evil Spotify paywall. Okay. That makes a lot of sense to me, but I mean, that's my rant. For a student who wants to listen to the Joe Rogan podcast, though, they that is only available on Spotify, correct? I wouldn't know. I'm not a I'm not a big Joe Rogan listener. I'll have to pass that one on to you. Oh, okay. Maybe maybe it's just me. Me me and millions of others. Yeah, there are podcasts that are that are Spotify exclusives, but that's what Spotify wants you to do. They want you to be like, well, I'm already listening because I need to listen to Joe Rogan, so I'll just listen to all of my podcasts on Spotify, and that's that's how the terrorists win. So uh, my my advice is to push back on that. Listen to anything you can outside of the Spotify world. Okay. I would like to make a deal with you right now. And I think that deal should be when the Spotify offer is north of $1 million, we will take it. 
Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'm I'm twenty bucks. I'm like you. You can get me I, for, for not much. I'm going to hold down and wait for a million. But I think well, I think once they want to give us a million dollars, I say we we sell out. And we this would be an interesting market move by Spotify would be to like sweep through the like podcasts with the, the low teens of listeners, get rid of bring those in. <laughs> they probably have a program like that just like crawls the internet looking for right. a JCapital. These people, these people of... are cheap. We'll take them, you know, maybe right, with exactly. a little bit of marketing, exactly. we could be doing better, exactly. you know, because if they buy a thousand of our little podcasts, one of these might be a hit. You know what I mean? And they're so cheap. You might as well. I wonder what the universe of podcasts is that are so ashamed of their content that they're not even willing to list themselves in like the global podcast registry, right? Do we not list ourselves? We're in the global not listed. Podcast you need to know like the magic URL to get our podcast. We should right. maybe so discuss the only people, whether the only we do people that. that find us are our students who we basically force to listen to this, right? Or like random like web crawling like algorithms, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a little bit of word of mouth. I mean, okay. students tell people or people. I know who, a lot of parents. I've had parents come up to me at, at various events and say they listen to the pod. Yeah. I mean, I think we, we get a little bit of word of mouth referral traffic, right? But I, I think that's probably the extent of it. Um, right. You know, people aren't stumbling upon this podcast because it is not listed in like the kind of big Apple register. So Apple has this registry of podcasts, which is where all the podcast apps get their listings, including Spotify. And so um, once you're listed there, it's easier to access the the podcast. But that also means that, you know. Right. We, we like to cultivate a very intimate community with our listeners. We don't really want to be out in the in the open. I don't. Yeah, we don't now. want to be a popular podcast. We want to be like yeah. only for the people in the know. Exactly. Yeah. It's like it's like a cool little club that people are in. If you're listening to this right now, you are in a cool club. Yeah. And you don't want to dilute that by having random people have access to it. Yeah. I mean, That's what, what I we need is like a T-shirt that yeah, if you're one of the seven people who listen to the podcast you see that yeah. other person, you're like, okay, you know, that's one of my people. Yeah. By the way, this is this is a shirt, uh, a, a very similar type of shirt. Do you know what this means, no. Jeff? No, is that is that like a camera term? What is that? Close, close, but not anywhere near the correct answer. Okay. This is a chess uh, meme, and it means it, it means don't play f6. F6 is a square on the chessboard, and the idea is that you never play f6. This this grandmaster Ben Feingold has this as his sort of, like, mantra. You don't want to play F6 because it weakens your king. It looks like a good move. So, like, a lot of beginners are like, ooh, that seems like a good move. And it's just a terrible move for pretty much any, any, any opening. So, anyway, so there are people out in the world. I wear this shirt out in the world. Virtually no one knows what it means. But every once in a while, you find somebody and they kind of give you a nod or, like, a, like, a, like a what's up. Like, they know what I, what, I, what I got here. They know this is a Ben Feingold meme. I feel like if we could cultivate something similar with our merch, and then people out in the wild, like in Northern Virginia, walking around, they, they'll see one another with the merch on and they'll know they're one of the Cheap Talk family members. Yeah, well, we should get our, our seven listeners on this. If, if anyone has any ideas about what the, what the merch should look like, um, we accept fan art. Agreed. Let's go to the phones. Let's see. Anybody have any good ideas? Let's go to the phones. Yeah, leave us a SpeakPike message and, and let us know or send an email to Marcus. He loves to hear from, from the seven listeners. Or, or send me a JPEG. Send me a, a, a prototype. Send me a mock-up. Send me a, and I, actually, that's probably a bad idea because then we have to pay them. Well, I don't okay. think we do. No, it's like... A, we'll have one of our wives light, write up a people. People do it for their own, um, you know... No, I know, but then, but then when we're famous and the, we're making lots of money, the student's going to come back and be like, I'm the one that created that. Only that's send us your, your fan art that's in the public domain, please. Right, and with a disclaimer saying we can use this for any type of monetary purposes that that's we right. want. You, you relinquish all rights. 
Glenn royalties. <laughs> Glad we took care of that. Um, all right. So um, turning to Iran.